Hey, everybody. Hey, Ben. Hey, Peter. Hey, Gina. Hey, what's going on? Hey, uh, yeah, not much. Just uh, I'm excited to to give this thing a shot during the uh, the business day. Um, see if it brings out any uh, any different groups. And uh, I guess we'll be running it this time throughout the summer, which is cool. There's a couple of speakers that I've been really excited to um, to have on that they can't do it after five, just because they have to speak on behalf of their certain businesses. So. Yeah, I, I wanted to get started today. Um, ben, I'm, I'm glad you joined us. Uh, we were able to j- join us early. Um, so I want to chat a little bit about um, the Ontario um, election and and different housing platforms. Um, and But we can probably start off, I guess, Ben, if we have you here now, because um, I know you, you have a, um, a hard stop at four. Um, I think Steve will be joining us towards towards four. So we can just kind of jump around based on... on you know, different policy happening, um, and then also where the macro is based on a variety of different metrics, and sort of where where everybody thinks things are heading in the real estate market as a result of, of yesterday's decision. Um, so, Ben, I'm not sure if you want to want to kick us off, and then uh, we can get yeah, kind of spiral out of control from there. Sure, sure. You, you can hear me all right. Yeah, now? yeah, I can hear you great. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that um, I mean a couple of the takeaways from yesterday's. Bank of Canada announcement, uh, the 50 basis points was entirely expected, so no surprise there. Um, but it's interesting what that does, right? So if you flow through that 50 basis point rate hike through to consumers, right? There's a metric that the Bank of Canada tracks, and I've kind of talked about it on previous calls here, but it's called the effective household interest rate, and it's kind of the, uh, the weighted average interest rate across all credit products. And as we flow through today or yesterday's 50 bit hike, through to consumers, and it, and it hits with a bit of a lag, but but in general, um, by the end of June, we should see the effective interest rate about 180 basis points higher than it was a year ago. So a year ago, it was about 2.5. By the end of June, um, it should be about 4.3. So that's a massive increase in the interest burden in one year. It's, it's the steepest increase we've seen in over 20 years. And so, yeah, that's got a real profound impact on affordability and and one of the charts that i had put out and not just affordability by the way but i think the biggest issue in the near term is probably going to be a slowdown in discretionary spending right maybe not until kind of the third quarter once we burn through some of the household savings household savings rate by the way is a total aside but the gdp report um this week was interesting because household savings is still very high right about eight percent um, so there's still some room for consumers to kind of absorb these rate hikes for a little bit. Um, but this is going to hurt as far as I'm concerned. And so to bring it back to the affordability picture, I put together a chart and uh, the Globe and Mail ran a story on it. But basically, it was just looking at, okay, so if you look at the typical house that's sold every month in Canada, and you can kind of proxy that by looking at the MLS house price index. Uh, and if you just sort of picture, well, what would your monthly payment be to buy that house each month um, and finance it at 80% loan to value at prevailing interest rates? And what's fascinating is in the six months leading up to the Bank of Canada announcement yesterday, that monthly payment rate jumped by about 800 bucks. And with the hold house prices steady from here and just assume that they're sort of unchanged over the next couple of months, then, um, then basically you'll be at about an $1,100 increase in just nine months, which is 
I mean, I don't know if it's unprecedented, but it's got to be as close to the steepest deterioration in affordability that we've seen at least since the, the late 1980s. So, yeah, I'm kind of of the view that I think you can argue that there there is still some uh, more structural issues with bringing supply to market, particularly in the single family space. And um, by and large, inventory levels in the resale market is still quite low. But you're just not going to offset the deterioration and affordability of this magnitude without something giving, as far as I'm concerned. And that something either has to be interest rate or has to be house prices. So I'll leave it there, and um, and maybe someone else wants to jump in. Yeah, I appreciate it, Ben. Um, and I know uh, we we don't have um, Eric here for a long time either, so maybe I will um, – I, I guess I'll, I'll put the question out there to anybody who, who might want to answer it. Um, when you talk about something needing to give to sort of offset that deterioration in affordability, you know, like, I, I mean, prior to this whole thing happening, we were all saying, oh, well, if prices come down, then then housing should become more affordable realistically, right? And, and I, I don't think it's really playing out that way, especially – given the magnitude of, um, of variable interest uh, originations happening sort of during that run-up, a lot of people kind of calling the, the Bank of Canada's bluff, but also using uh, the variable rate to qualify for a higher mortgage because of the stress test issues. Um, is there, and Eric, maybe you can lead with this one and, and sort of give a summary of, of the, the platform because you guys did some really exceptional work on what the, the Ontario election is doing um, from a housing perspective, or sorry, what each party is doing in the Ontario election and what's being proposed. From your perspective, is there anything that can meaningfully offset this this situation that we're in? You know, if 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 as as Ben mentioned, everything was unchanged, um, could we see something either on on the political side or on the on the fiscal side that could offset these these difficulties that are being brought forward, but as a result of the macro environment? Um, so, Eric, I'll let you go ahead there. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to the macro environment, um, you know, I think what we're going to end up seeing uh, is as interest rates rise, we know the cost of borrowing goes up. And I think prices will fall as a result of that, because, you know, it it is a big change in that borrowing capacity. But will prices fall enough to really offset uh, those additional costs for, for new buyers and those who are left out? And realistically, the answer is no. And, you know, despite the fact that, you know, prices will fall uh, for housing, we're still seeing an acceleration in the cost of rent, which is also another real uh, issue. And so, you know, when it comes to the policies of what can really address this, the reality is, you know, we're still in a fundamental problem where there is not enough housing available and it's made that, you know, scarcity of suitable availability, um, you know, a, a major factor in how prices play out and affordability plays out in the long term. Um, you know, the way that we've outlined things at More Neighbors, um, especially at like the political level, is, you know, there has to be a marriage in action between solutions that really address demand side. Um, and I know, you know, folks like John have been really, you know, gung-ho about that. But, we can't ignore the reforms to enable more homes to be built over the long term if at we at any point would like for incomes to have a chance to catch up, not just to prices, but to the borrowing capacity that they, they lend in the interest rate environment. And so, um, you know, is there a near term solution that uh, can help here? I mean, I'm afraid not. Like prices are just going to have to react to the interest rate environment 
But like with anything that affects the overall amount of borrowing capacity or, or the, the demand, once we see those rates stabilize, a lot of buyers are going to you know assess their new comfort level with that more stable environment. And you know I think a lot of people are pulling out of the market because of that uncertainty of just how far they will go. We'll probably see the same trajectory in housing prices that we saw um, you know pre-COVID. And that was still far steeper than what incomes were allowing for. Like the housing crisis didn't start during COVID, right? So, I mean, that's really my overview and two cents. Um, but from a political perspective, you know, the demand side action can do some short term things, but really, you know, they still need to pursue those, those broader, much more difficult reforms if, you know, in the medium to long term, things get back to sanity in this province. Fair enough. I, I appreciate the insight there, Eric. Um, and, and in regards to like, you know, for Ontarians who, you know, especially given that that the GTA is the, the largest real estate market in the country, obviously going to move the needle on a national level for Ontarians who, you know, who want to prioritize housing affordability. And, and I'll leave this uh, open for you and, or for Justice Queen to answer um, what you know, how should they be voting or how can they be voting if, if, if housing affordability uh, on, on either on the supply side or on some other policy response um, is their main priority? Like what, you know, if you want to maybe just outline sort of the main main policy points of, of those different plat, uh, party platforms, just for those who might be heading to the polls today still and, and thinking about uh, a decision in that, that respect. Yeah, um, I, I can outline. So, I mean, I think the first party to start with, I think, is the progressive conservatives. Um, and, you know, I think what's been disappointing about this entire election, um, you know, I actually am, like, sympathetic to conservatives, but, you know, they didn't release a platform at all, and they have made no real commitments. And, you know, we saw with the task force report, which was excellent and bolder than I thought it would be, um, you know, there's there is this hesitation that that happened by the Ford government. They they waffled when some mayors can complained. So, you know, the the vote for them is really one of do you feel confident that with a new mandate that they are going to go ahead with the, the more challenging reforms? And you know, people in the party have said such things to me. I, I saw Rescon endorse them. And when I spoke to uh, Richard Lyle, like he had confidence that, you know, this government has moved things in the right direction, where some, you know, the liberals previously did not. That being said, can't evaluate something that doesn't exist, hence why we gave them the worst uh, platform grade. There's a lot of similarities between the liberal and the NDP platforms. I was really pleased to see that they both proposed a public builder that is tasked with either financing or directly building uh, mixed income housing on public property uh, or like privately owned, publicly owned uh, land. You know, I know there's a lot of arguments for and against doing this, but I think the thing that stands out to me is, you know, a public builder that has, you know, a capacity to at least plan its pipeline and have projects in the backlog can both really help on the affordable and uh, some in shelter level housing costs because those builds can be amortized at you know the same rate as a government bond, which can be up to fifty years. And so your ongoing operating costs for servicing that debt can be made a lot lower, right? And I, I was pleased to see that that was in both the platforms. And you know I think there's other benefits depending on the way 
they craft those type of organizations. Um, so I was pleased to see that. All, you know, uh, three, I'd say, progressive parties, the Liberals, NDP, and Greens, all have some tribute to ending exclusionary zoning. The Greens are obviously, you know, the only ones meeting that task force recommendation for it. Um, so in other ways, the NDP and the Liberals, right direction, but are there plans going to make this missing middle type of housing viable? Like, basically, no, right? And, you know, we, we have to push them a lot further. Um, there is some decent stuff on rent control and also some terrible things on rent control. So, you know, the NDP and the Greens both support vacancy control, which, you know, I, I think without a lot of policies that offset the disincentive to build rental um, will ultimately be self-defeating for hitting that 1.5 million target. Overall, I would say the Greens were the, the most specific and most ambitious on the need to build housing and also to build it in, in places that people would like to live. That's why they got the highest score, despite having some other flaws. Overall, you know, the biggest flaw across all their parties is the fact that they're afraid of municipalities. Um, and that's, that's really written all over it. Um, and you know, maybe with a, a, a strong mandate, it will be easier for the province to sort of dictate to the municipalities what the new future is going to look like. But, you know, overall, there's far more, too much paying tribute to, like, working with the municipal partners. It's like, well, municipalities have failed left, right, and center on getting housing built. They're not partners, and they're not suddenly going to be. So, you know, I think that's really where our whole political culture has still not accepted that need for that urgency and to, to move forward there. So I realize I spoke for a long time, so I'll, uh, I'll hand it back. Yeah, no, that was really good, Eric. I actually appreciate that. And, and I think it was a pretty good exhaustive look at, at sort of what, uh, what the policy environment is looking at. Um, I'll let justice queen jump in quickly. And then I think we'll maybe gradually segue to, unless any of the, the guys who are talking sort of will want to touch on the policy side or, or use it to tie in. Um, but we'll, we'll get a, a bit of a summary here from my favorite missing middle advocate on, uh, on Twitter right now, um, Justice Queen, and we'll, uh, we'll maybe segue over to the to the macro side a little bit. Um, so go ahead. The floor is yours. Yeah. So um, like Eric, I think that the Greens actually had a, an amazing housing platform. Like I was very blown away by them. I think that overall their entire plan was great like i hope that the leader gets a job with someone somewhere like at some point because i don't see the greens like actually winning you know the government or whatever but their plan was great like they talked a lot about missing middle they talked about um you know walk-up apartments allowing triplexes and fourplexes as of right um they even talked about having an initiative to address nimbyism which the ontario human rights commission has been calling for for years uh, they talked about 15-minute neighborhoods. Um, they they had a lot of great things. So I would have to say that I really am impressed with the green platform. I hope that whoever wins takes things from the green platform because I think that they did have a very good um, housing platform. Um, I was not uh, too impressed with either the Liberal or um, NDP plans. Like, I didn't find them uh, very comprehensive. I mean, I didn't find the PC plan comprehensive as well. 
But I do think that the Conservatives have the housing um, task force plan, which is a great plan. One thing about Doug Ford, I think that um, he's pretty careful before an election. Like, I don't think he's he wants to win this election. So he's not going to come out and say, well, I'm going to end exclusionary zoning or I'm going to, you know, make this as of right. I think that he is the type of leader that will take strong actions after he gets into um and i only say this because i work for the public sector so i do work for the ontario government and i do find that even last time when he came into power he did take pretty strong actions some negative some positive um but that's just the type of leader he is so i think that he was careful with what he would adopt from that plan because he wants to win the election um i do agree with eric that um you know the the city is actually the problem like city of toronto and the municipalities are the ones that are encouraging the nimbyism and i think that it is critical to end exclusionary zoning people don't always like that language and they think it's getting rid of single family homes and it's not it's just saying that you know you can build more than single family homes on two thirds of the land. And I think that that's critical in Toronto and, and it's possible for us to do it. There are other cities across Canada who have done this. I mean, um, Edmonton is one, Regina is emulating um, Edmonton's model and Yellowknife recently ended um, single family home zoning. So I think that that is critical. I do think that in all the other cities' cases that have made this happen, they have worked with um, the like resident associations. They've worked um, within the cities doing this. So I, I do think that there is a role of those resident associations. I, I do believe in democracy and I believe they have a role, but I think that what they're missing is a good leader who would actually make it happen. I think that we need more young leaders. We need um, leaders from different backgrounds because right now we're not getting what we need. We have a whole bunch of counselors who don't have a backbone, who can't stand up to these resident groups. I mean, there's a hearing right now at the OLT for garden suites, which has been opposed by seven resident groups in Toronto. Um, but I do think that that's how we have to move forward. We have to somehow reform our zoning and we do need appropriate housing builds. And we are missing a missing middle housing type. Like a lot of families can't, um, like they're outgrowing their condo and, and they also can't have a single family home because maybe they can't afford it or they don't need that space. So I think that that's a critical step that we need to take going forward. And I hope that the province actually makes that happen because you know what, if the city of Toronto is not going to do it, then let the province do it. Let um, whoever's going to be the next leader say, look, we're going to end it. And even if they just end it in one city, let's just say they just took Toronto and did it in Toronto and started in Toronto. That would even be welcome, but someone has to take the step. And that's where I think that um, people have to continue having the conversation because I also feel that now that home prices are going down, like this kind of takes a back burner in a lot of politicians' minds because they're like, oh, home prices are going down so we can just ignore supply issues. But we do have supply and demand issues, and I do think that the supply needs to be addressed. Thanks. Uh, actually, a really good insight, especially the, the point you made at the end there that uh, politicians are, are sort of kind of putting it on the back burner because back burner because uh, you know the perception of affordability being associated with house prices coming down um, kind of happens at an economic level and not not so much at a policy level. Um, although I imagine we will see. Uh, certain candidates try to make it sound like it happened at a policy level when the next election comes up and they're they're conveniently timed um foreign buyer ban uh was uh right at the top of the market um anyway i want to i know we have limited time here with ben and um 
and and I want to get uh, I would love to to resume this discussion maybe towards the end of the space if you guys are both still around Eric I know you do have a, a I think you're going on TV which is awesome um, but but I, I want to talk a little bit more about the election after as well but um, we have a new guest here Richard uh, which I think Steve brought on so I appreciate that and Richard uh, great to have you here could you uh, maybe just give us a quick intro and um, get a little bit of a summary of sort of your take on on what's happened as a result of the, the Bank of Canada decision yesterday and what impact that might have on, on Canada as a whole and, and also on you know, the, the real estate economy here. Um, that's, that's kind of what we t- try and tie everything to at the, at the end of the day. Um, so, so, yeah, the floor is yours. Um, thank you, Daniel. I just want to say you guys, are, you guys sound so switched on and so well-researched that I'm a little bit embarrassed to be joining you guys. Um, so thank you so much for your contributions, frankly, and and for the minutia and the detail. And I think Ben said the word charts like three or four times, which titillates me because I love charts and data. And I thought I was the only person who knew. Yeah, the, they were big <laughs> I thought I was the only person who knew what the effective interest rate was in Canada. So it's nice to know I'm not, I'm not alone. Um, so I don't know what I can add. You guys are just, I mean, frankly, when it comes to this kind of stuff, it's just uh, are lapping me. But I, I would say just a couple of things that I think is really important that everybody sort of just wrap their head around. I do not think politicians want affordable housing. So as much as I I respect your guys' analysis of the platforms and all of this stuff, I just don't think that that's true. And um, because affordable housing means that house prices fall relative to to the income of the people that are voting for the politicians who say that. And so you say, well, Rich, that seems very cynical. Well, I am cynical. I think it's my superpower. But I think it's it's really really important that there's a amount of a amount of lip service that goes on with this, um, and I think that's really so. Whenever we're always we're thinking about it and discussing about it, you know, um, I always say to my my analyst Nathan, I always say, you know, show me an incentive and I'll show you the result. And their incentive is to stay in power, and to stay in power, you need people's wealth and their their feeling of wealth to stay elevated. And so, yes, do I believe that there are people who are. I wouldn't say altruistic because I don't think that that exists, but I do. I think people have their heart in the right place and they want housing to be affordable. Yeah, sure. But as a rule, when, you know, when you hear the leader of our country say he wants housing affordability to go, um, you know, to be housing to be more affordable, I just frankly just do not believe that that's a thing. Um, and, and I think as voters, we share a big responsibility for that because when our house prices fall, we get angry and vote the guy out or girl out. So that's, that's the first thing. As far as the interest rate hikes, Daniel, to answer your question, um, I think it was priced in. Um, I mean, I, again, you guys have just done such a good job sort of framing that discussion. So I'm not sure how much I can add to it. But I think there's two ways that I see it. One is that it's about time. Um, I think it's, you know, it's an admission that they've made a mistake. They haven't said it as explicitly as Janet Yellen may have said it uh, a couple of days ago, which they got, they got policy error wrong. Excuse me, they got it wrong. It was an error and they're walking back. But I think the, the chat of 75 basis points, of uh, 50 basis points, all that stuff, they acknowledge that keeping real interest rates below zero. So what's a real interest rate? It's interest rates basically adjusted for some kind of inflation metric. But keeping in, uh, real interest rates negative for 10 plus years has clearly exacerbated all of the issues that we are looking at with respect to housing. And I think that they, they've, I think they're finally slowly realizing that that's just not an effective or adequate policy. 
in in today's age. So I, that's my hope. Maybe you know I've I've been criticized for being too optimistic, but and perhaps I'm guilty of that. And then the last thing I'll leave you with um, is just simply I think one of the things that I think we often forget, and I think it's probably good for society, good for a, a country as large as Canada, is I think and something that we've been exposed to. Um, in this pandemic is the mobility factor. I think that everyone's sort of obsessed about living in these three cities, but I think that something that happened in the great depression and, you know, not to be an overly economic historian, but something to talk about was moving. And I think that we often forget that, you know, we need to kind of lean into these external um incentives now you say rich that's really a harsh way to look at housing you know if you can't afford it leave but i think that that's you know when we talk about productivity gains when we talk about a cohesive country when we talk about you know canada's a really really big country there's no reason we need to obsess over a corner on the north part of lake ontario you know, or in Vancouver or wherever. And I think this idea that maybe that's just a different, I don't mean to throw a grenade into what has been a really lovely conversation, but I'm just saying, why can't people just not live there in the same way that people moved across from the East coast of America to, you know, California and et cetera, et cetera. And it's just something I think that this is not discussed enough. I mean, there could be incentives and government help for people who say, you know what, you screwed us out of our Toronto single family home. We'd like to live in, winnipeg or thunder bay or wherever and it's just something i think that would be interesting but daniel thank you again for having me uh join the call and then the chat and you guys like i said you guys are just wonderful so thank you for, for teaching me something it's, yeah my pleasure i uh, i appreciate the insight um, hey dan can i jump in and just ask a quick question yeah for ben sure. here. hey richard um ben here big fan of your work and some of your analysis and your charts that you post on twitter uh, and I know you're a big Bank of Canada watcher. I'm just curious, kind of at a personal level, like like from my end, you know, when I look at the Bank of Canada and kind of where the terminal rate may be, uh, I'm just curious if like where you peg that and whether you think the comments from the Bank of Canada, both yesterday with the, the announcement and then also the language in the speech today, um, whether that changes your view and kind of where you think that's going to end up. Okay, so I've, I have two answers for that question. One is a hopeful answer, and one is what I think will happen. And the hopeful answer is they get real interest rates above zero. And I know that wasn't exactly your question, but I'll get to that in a second. So, you know, it's for me, it's just about real interest rates. Um, it's, it's keeping real interest rates above zero. Show me a negative real interest rate, and I'll show you a housing bubble. It happened in Ireland, in Spain. The Germans who turn their nose up anything below, you know, below uh, the Alps, they think they're all a bunch of profligate, uh, lazy people. Guess what? You give Germans a negative real interest rate, go look at Berlin house prices. They've nearly doubled in the last five years. So for me personally, what, what I hope is they, they push real interest rates above zero. You say, Rich, that seems really high. No, but that is, that is the normal way of things. For Canada has had 70 years of positive real interest rate. And I would should hope that they're going to push real interest rates back above zero, which will deviate some of the investment away from real estate and into more productive assets. Uh, my cynical real world analyst hat on is I think they'll quit. I think they'll capitulate as soon as there's real pain because that, that that's, you know, that's what they've done. They've, you know, when shown, someone shows you who they are, believe them. And so right now, you know, 
I know that the market's pricing in another, you know, 100, 150 basis points. But there's two reasons why I think that, that, that we won't get up there. One is I think inflation is about to roll over. The way I look at that is I look at like the peak, nothing, nothing complicated. Anybody can replicate the chart, which is just the core PPI, which is the producer price index. If you plot it on core inflation nine months out, it's rolling over. And I, I think as soon as it starts to roll over in earnest, I think that the Bank of Canada will get the political pressure will come off the boil and they'll be able to the rhetoric will be able to slow not to mention as you guys have pointed out there's already slowing economic growth and slowing real estate prices and then the other reason is i think you know the global economy is gonna is 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 in a mid-cycle slowdown i hate using the r word drives me crazy but the you know i think that we're in a mid-cycle slowdown due to the implications of russia invading a sovereign nation and china obsessed with covid and so I, I think that when you ask me, Richard, what do I think my terminal rate is, Ben, you'll know I never, ever give forecasts because I think people get married to those forecasts. But I would suggest that um, I think it's lower than what's being priced in for the, the reasons I stated above. Does that, does that sort of answer your question or did I, did I go too far? <laughs> yeah, I think you and I, so it's funny, I, I, I think you and I think very much alike on this stuff. I agree with you completely. I, I put together a chart recently just looking at the overnight rate in real terms i mean going back as far as as far as we have data and uh it's it's stunning how deeply negative it is and to your point like we do forget that for most of the time it's been in positive terms and in in real in real terms right so there's a long ways to go there but i i agree with you i think the sensitivity um to the economy related to real estate and household consumption is just so great that I think rates at this level are going to cause pain. And I, I think I shared on the last call, I don't know if you were on, Richard, but if you look at household uh, debt service ratios, yes. yeah. and if you just assume that the Bank of Canada stops here, right? So they don't they don't move in July, there's no more yes. rate hikes. And then you still assume that you get very robust wage growth. So I was kind of modeling out like 2% quarterly aggregate wage growth, which is pretty pretty solid. You know, interest rates where they are today will put household debt service ratios at record highs by Q1 next year. So I, I just think I don't see how, <laughs> you know, and then when you marry on top of that, what's happening with food and fuel prices, I don't see how we don't see a real steep decline or a real weakness in in consumption and then kind of the bleed through from from, you know, weaker house prices. And by the way, on that point, uh, for those who saw the GDP report this week, Residential investment, which oh, is no. new construction <laughs> plus renovation plus ownership transfer costs, 10% of GDP. Yeah. I mean, we thought it was crazy in the U.S. when they peaked at like 6.5%. And in prior cycles, yeah, and in prior cycles in Canada, we kind of got up to almost 8% a couple times. Um, and here we are at 10%. And what's crazy is I put out a chart because you, you kind of mentioned how negative real interest rates – Kind of, they over incentivize investment in housing, and it's such a great point because I put this chart out. It's actually you can find it on my Twitter feed, but it's just ownership transfer costs relative to all investment in machinery and equipment and research and development across all industries in Canada, and just ownership transfer costs is nearly as large as all of those business investments. I mean, it's it's so absurd that chart. And so I think you're absolutely right. We need to we need to find a way to wean Canada off of this insane housing and consumption boom. 
So, so I mean, I love listening to you. Obviously, clearly, if you follow me on Twitter, you I think. I mean, I don't want to get too excited, but I am a nerd at heart. So I'm. I. I mean, yes, just full stop. I agree with everything you have to say. I just looked at the number now. It's ten point one. Um, I'm looking. I compare it normally to ten point one in the sense that residential investment, so gross fixed capital formation as a percentage of GDP, is ten point one for Canada. That's outrageous. Just to give you um, some context for the listeners who may or may not have the chart in front of them, you know, Ireland was at peaked at uh, like 11, Spain at, at 12. It's never going to be the exact same number, of course. But I mean, anywhere, whenever you're getting into those, you know, heady figures of Ireland and Spain, you're, it's always a problem. So I agree with you completely. The other thing that I think we don't talk about with respect to real estate and how disastrous it is for our country is when is is that productivity piece which you so eloquently put. And if you look at real estate, sorry, excuse me, excuse me. If you look at research and development spend as a percentage of GDP, it's a twenty-year low. So it's well, and not only that, Richard. Sorry to interrupt, but not only no, no, twenty-year low. But what's really fascinating is if you look at the change in research and development expenditures as a share of GDP. Canada is the only OECD country that's seen that decline in the last 20 years. I, I'm not surprised at all. I'm yeah, it's, it's stunning. It's stunning. And what's all, what else is crazy, just to frame this in one slightly different way, but if you look at, okay, look at um, residential investment as a share of all gross fixed capital formation. So call that for those listening. Yeah, in, I've got that like kind too. of all. <laughs> yeah, this is crazy, but just for, the go for, it, go listening, for, for, their, for their benefit here. So that's kind of like all investment across the entire economy. Uh, from businesses and governments and, and and households. And basically, gross... So, so residential investment right now is about 42% of total gross fixed capital formation. So you're like, well, what in the world does that mean? Well, to frame it... So Richard talked about like Spain and Ireland and, and uh, Greece and some of these countries that had these tremendous uh, housing booms in kind of the mid-2000s and early 2000s. And that was right around the level that they peaked at is kind of that low right. 40% range. And the issue is, to Richard's point, is that like at some point we need to be investing in the productivity growth and business growth so that we can support house prices and debt levels at these, at, at these levels. And we're just not doing that. So from a long-term perspective, it's like that's a real problem in Canada. So, so, with, so, I mean, again, I can't, you said it perfectly. So I, you know, um, you know, not to pump overly pump your tires, <laughs> but just, but I mean, I, of course I agree with everything you think. I think the, the, other, I would say it was the one counterpoint, which is you have to, you know, as an analyst, you constantly be, you need to be thinking about how I screwed this theory up, how I screwed, like, I, I think it's easy to think about how you're right. It's a lot harder to think about how you've gotten this wrong. And I think where, you know, where I could say maybe this argument breaks down just to be the devil's advocate for the sake of conversation is population growth. And I think that that's where Canada sort of is saving itself. Now you could say, Rich, that's not good. It's bad. I'm not, I'm, I don't give a, you know, I don't care about the value. To it. I'm just saying, if you let in 400,000 people into this country year after year, year after year, your GDP will go up. I'm not saying your productivity will up. I'm saying your GDP will go up. And a lot of these crazy numbers will deflate, not, you know, quote unquote, naturally. Now, I, I don't think that's a good idea. I'm just saying that's the math, right? That's the way it works out. But yeah, Ben, I mean, thank, thanks for, I mean, yeah, you, you, you stole my thunder. I couldn't have said it better myself, really. Thanks, Richard. Um, 
I, I actually wanted to return while we still have Eric here to um, return to sort of what you had mentioned in your first statement there, um, especially in regards to like on the voting side. Um, I think that at least from my perspective, that one of the challenges is sort of happening as a result of, of COVID policy. And, and maybe I, I don't know if it's like that I'm connected with a younger group of voters uh, and Eric might have, like be experiencing the, the similar phenomenon. But um, I, I would imagine that gradually like that the the home ownership piece and and the erasure of of equity um and i think this is sort of around the time when when eric's hand went up so i'll I'll let eric jump in after this um but i think the erasure of of equity um of homeowners across canada could could gradually become a less and less important piece of the puzzle as we've got you know uh like i I was always fearful that maybe not fearful but i I always just felt that the net the next election would be you know primarily driven by housing and then also, it would be probably the, the, the perfect timing for a populist to to slide in. And, and, you know, you started to see some of that happening kind of on on, on TikTok with uh, with Jugmeet Singh and, and all of that uh, around, you know, and a lot of it's about people being pushed out of the housing market, right? Young people especially. And, and so I, I guess my, my thought there would be, could we start to see that that component, uh, the fear of, of erasing homeowner equity, be become less and less of a of a of a problem for politicians, um, as we approach a, a voting population that is more and more uh, in the rental uh, tenure rather than the ownership tenure. Um, Eric, did you want to jump in here? I know you're you're sort of limited on time, so if you want to, yeah. Uh, I actually did like I when I heard that I, I immediately wanted to address it because you know it you know the cynical view is that no politicians you know, want homeowner equity to go down because Canadians don't. But politicians want to get elected and they don't want to be yelled at. And that's really like the two things that drive them. And so, you know, a lot of people are yelling at them about this issue, number one. Like it is a major issue. And then number two, you know, I don't think the vast majority of homeowners, especially the older ones, I mean, I'm a homeowner myself and this is like a fundamental thing that I think as a society we are screwing up and screwing ourselves on. I don't think the politics is as far away from, you know, actually having leaders who do want to tackle this as we think. I actually think that, you know, we're really arriving at a precipice. Like if you are a older homeowner, you have two kids and, you know, yeah, like your your home went up, you know, $500,000 in equity value in, in two years, but your kids will never, ever be able to live here if you don't help them. What are you going to do? You're going to take that equity value that you just got and you're going to give it to your kids and you're still no richer than you would have otherwise been had your kids not needed your help in the first place. And I think there's this new rationalization about this happening in, in Canada on this issue. Has it arrived yet? Might be a little bit ahead of the politicians, but I, I really genuinely think that that direction is real. And I've spoken to a not lot, enough politicians that, yes, some of them do care. Like, there's no question, right? Um, the other thing that was mentioned is like, well, why don't you just move? And then we suddenly went from, why don't you just move to like, let's talk about productivity. But the reality of productivity is that there's agglomeration effects that happens when you empower people to live next to jobs and opportunities that are able to raise their productivity. That's why cities are so much more productive than other areas. It's because of all of those connections that they make and the empowerment people have to move between jobs that are actually advancing their careers and 
et cetera, et cetera. I mean, how you move people and what you have give them in terms of disposable income. Like all these things are so fundamentally related to how we think about cities and the policy reform that like, I don't even think it makes sense to have a conversation about our productivity without talking about the fact that the vast majority of our land area is unproductive in its suburbs, right? Like that is just a fact. And so, you know, if we really want to boost productivity, you got to let people live in cities. I mean, there's a study in the U.S. that showed that American GDP could be up to 30% higher if San Jose, San Francisco, L.A., and New York City had zoning regulations that were similar to the median American city. Like, we can't just have this discussion separately. Like, productivity is intrinsically tied to how people are able to live their lives. So that's really my two cents. And as an advocate, you know, that's the type of stuff I fight for. I appreciate that, Eric. Um, I think it ties in nicely as well to sort of that discussion on on productivity and and uh, immigration. Um, one of the things I spoke with um, a while back, I think it was like kind of early COVID, uh, with Francis Donald was this phenomenon that, that Richard mentioned as well um, of people starting to move to kind of like your second tier, third tier cities, more affordable cities, especially people who wanted to have. Uh, the ability to, you know, do new household formation, have a family, et cetera, in, and, and still live in, in an urban area, proximity to the workplace. Um, and and I, I'm interested to kind of like, I, I think that that maybe that that is happening a little bit more than than it might show up in the in the data. Um, like we've seen, I think for the first time ever, people, uh, I think we have a net net exodus of people from Ontario to Quebec, as an example, that data just came out, which is crazy, right? Like first time or first time in like I don't know, I think since the 50s, maybe. Um, but again, just things like this happening that, that are, are starting to indicate that that the housing affordability issue is actually um, changing the way that we that we sort of navigate throughout our country. Um, Steve, your hand up went up first there. Uh, I want to let you jump in and then we'll get to, uh, to your point here. And then Peter. Oh, yeah, I was just. Uh, yeah, I definitely agree. Like, I know where Eric's coming from, right? Like, it's almost like you're not really any better off necessarily because, you know, you have to get, and obviously I have a you know, younger guy myself, a lot of friends and family that, uh, you know, are extremely displeased with the state of the housing market and, and definitely feeling like that social contract is broken and that they'll never sort of have, you know, the life that they grew up with, which, um, so yeah, I think it's, it's discouraging for a lot of young people, but I also think, you know, it's like, I don't know. I just look at it as like a politician. I think this, this is so much larger than any one politician. Um, you know, to, to Ben's point, right? Like look how much of Canada's GDP is, is derived off of like housing and, and the knock on effects of housing that like, the only way to get affordable housing is really to bring pricing down ultimately. And, and, and that's going that comes with a lot of pain. And to be honest, like a lot of job loss, I think that's because of how much housing plays an important role in that. So, I mean, obviously Ben can, can talk to that, but I think if you look at any, like, and if you look at any real like housing downturn, I mean, that's come with like massive unemployment. And like when people lose jobs, you don't get reelected. So I think that's just like the unfortunate reality is like nobody wants to endure the pain. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I always look at it and say like, I think we definitely need more housing supply and that will sort of help. But like builders, builders don't build. Like if, if, if the housing market is down 15%, I'm sorry, these guys aren't starting new housing. Like it's just not, it's not how it goes. Like you have to also remember that like 
most of these developers, I know it's maybe a little bit different in the GTA, but I can tell you, so in BC, um, in BC, a developer, typically speaking, most of these developers have to hit about 60% pre-sales in order to secure construction financing. So, and they usually have 12 months. That's the, the regulations here. They have 12 months to basically sell 60% of the building. And so a developer looks at it and says, well, hey, listen, the market's down. The sentiment is dog shit. Uh, Bank of Canada says they're going to raise rates to 3%. Why the hell would we launch a product right now? So these guys don't build in a downturn. It's not so much because they don't necessarily want to build either. It's because the banks aren't going to give them the financing to build the thing. So it's, it's kind of a complicated topic. Um, so I don't know. That's, that's kind of my rant. Thanks, Steve. Um, Tahir, did you want to jump in? Then we'll get to, uh, to Justice Queen and Gina. Yes. Yeah, so, um, sorry, I'm just stepping out of the office here. I'm not sure if you guys know, I got moved to a bank here in Toronto. So, uh, I'm up here for the next six months. Um, glad to have you. No offense guys. Um, but now, now that I'm here, um, I, I think that I'm seeing a lot of things and, and I really wanted to talk about banking. Um, but now, uh, unfortunately I can't, um, as it would be kind of a, of a conflict of interest. But um, I think that there was a lot that was touched on, especially on the productivity side. And I put up some charts and, and the reason, uh, and I, I think Steve was there yesterday for that talk we had with Mike Green. Um, and, you know, I, I think Mike Green is probably uh, one of the most intelligent people I personally know, but, um, you know, I think, Canada has a hard time, and I think more the Federal Reserve has a hard time, um, because I would say they're kind of the father of all these other central banks. Um, they're going to have a harder time raising interest rates. Um, I, I touched on something with John, <laughs> uh, John, and, and he was kind of like, you know, can you explain this to anybody who doesn't spend all day in front of a Bloomberg terminal? But um, what we kind of look at is is something, and, and you have to have an ISDA agreement kind of to trade these, but it's... Um, cross-currency basis swaps. And I, I think that those are looking very negative uh, for Canada and, and basically a way to, to judge those um, is it's a way to look at dollar shortages, U.S. dollar shortages within Canada. Um, and Canada uh, has the worst dollar shortage that they've had outside of the pandemic. Um, and, you know, you would assume if the Fed's going to continue on this monetary policy, uh, Canada's um, dollar shortage is going to get even worse. And this is a country that's the largest trading partner um, with the United States. And, and so, Mike, um, and I would much echo this, too, um, and, and also I had Nancy Davis on, um, both of them said that they think the Fed is uh, bluntly full of shit and will end up backing off. And so I think every other central bank will back off. Um, the problem is if the Fed doesn't, I think the Bank of Canada will because of the productivity issue. Um, like, and, and I posted those charts. Like if, if you just look at, you know, um, output cost uh, to produce in, in Canada versus the U.S., it's, it's massive. If you look at, um, you know, the, the labor productivity gap between the United States and Canada, it's massive. If you look at the investment in more or less real economic assets in the United States, you know, machinery um, and equipment uh, plus uh, intellectual property, um, and, and you would take the ratio of uh, residential investment. Um, obviously, residential investment has decreased massively in the United States um, and more investment in machinery and equipment. The very opposite has happened in Canada. So I think that when you have such a lack of productivity and you have such a large amount of GDP tied 
um, to something that is extremely interest rate sensitive, um, you have an inability, uh, even if the Fed was to tighten further, because dollar shortages don't affect America, they affect everybody else who needs it for global trade, right? Um, because we produce those dollars. And I, I think that this is where um, every central bank uh, in the world is, is kind of in a bit of a bind, and I think we'll end up uh, having to back off policy. I know that that was kind of a lot to cover there, but I... I I don't think the BO, uh, the BOC goes much further, and I don't think the Fed goes much further. I think Mike said he believes the Fed will back off in, in about mid-September, or the September uh, when they're when they're supposed to raise in September. Thank you, Tahir. I appreciate it. Um, I think we're going to go to Justice, uh, then Gina, and then I think we got Peter and Alex. I think that's the right order. So, yeah, the point I just wanted to make is that I, I do agree with one of the speakers before that said the government's not interested in having affordable housing. And I do think that, like, when we talk about it as affordable housing, I feel it, it confuses a lot of people because when I think of affordable housing, I think more of social housing. And I do think that that's the government's role to provide social housing to people. And the government has been a royal failure on it. They literally um, have stopped producing enough um, social housing if they actually kept up with the number of housing that they were supposed to produce since the 70s, we would have half the wait time for social housing. Right now, Toronto has a wait time of 5 to 13 years for social housing. Toronto has built 4,000 social housing units in the last decade, which is embarrassing. So we have a lot of people that are actually like in market rate housing that get evicted and stuff like that, that shouldn't actually be in market rate housing. They should be in social housing. So I would say the government needs to produce the social housing. But I think what a lot of young people that are struggling to get in the market just want more market rate housing and they're simply not enough. Our vacancy rates are constantly under 2%. We have, uh, you know, 0.3% in so much of the GTA. We don't have enough um, miss, missing middle housing we don't have like enough family size housing so we're definitely like we don't have enough and it's politicians constantly saying oh we'll build oh, you, you know what we we can't build that luxury condo we can't build missing middle it's too expensive it's constant like it's on twitter it's everywhere you go like it's at public consultation meetings where they're like we don't want to build it because it's too expensive it's it's not affordable but you have a whole bunch of young people that are interested in purchasing housing not all of them can afford a detached home and we don't really have enough other options because it's like a detached home or a high-rise condo. Um, so I don't feel like people are necessarily saying that they need housing that has to be like affordable or a certain price. Like there are, there is a segment of the population that does need that. But there's also just people that are looking for um, more housing. I think that one of the dilemmas is that the uh, resident groups that are against housing in their neighborhood will constantly say it's not affordable, so don't build it. Like they're actually expecting developers to build affordable housing. And I think that that's a complete failure. I don't think it's for developers uh, to provide social housing. And I also don't think that new end users should have to pay additional taxes like inclusionary zoning to subsidize other people. So I think that it's really a government failure of actually providing real affordable housing to people who need it. Thanks, Justice. I actually think it, it marries in nicely, just given the, at least from my perspective, I think that this K-shaped recovery that we're experiencing as a result of, of monetary policy through uh, through COVID, like through the global pandemic, is is I don't think we've really fully experienced the impact of the disparity that that's going to create between asset holders and, and those who don't hold assets. And, and like I think now more than ever, the importance of conversation around um, social housing tied to you know the economics of it and also 
you know, policy discussion heading into an election today um, is an important one. I think that, again, like addressing it the way that you mentioned um, is, is especially important because it's it's just as as uh, it, I guess it's, it's just as needed to be considered by the private and public sectors. Um, and I think that forming some sort of consensus on, on, on whose responsibility is um, could at least help us a little bit. Uh, Gina, do you want to, uh, I know your hand went up a while ago. I, I, we're kind of bouncing yeah. around from a bunch of different points here. I, I'm quite enjoying it, so hopefully everybody else is. Yeah, uh, it's awesome. Um, I just wanted to speak to Eric's point. I thought it was really, really interesting when he spoke about the um, sort of like the the pool of, of voters is is turning to, you know, I guess, you know, my age group where I have three children, my oldest one being 25, and she had to move out to Halifax in order to be able to buy a place. And uh, the way I vote and the way, you know, I will continue to vote is about making housing again not affordable housing but a way that uh, younger generations will be able to afford it and and it it really is i don't want to see my children have to move to quebec or you know uh calgary or something like that in order to to be able to buy a house so it's really important to me you know as an almost 50 year old or whatever to have to have that as the forefront of of government policy that i will be voting for so um i thought that was a great point that eric uh Thanks, you know, uh, great insight, especially, you know, sort of returning to that, that dialogue around the mobility of, of people uh, around the, the country as a result of affordability, whether or not it's pushing people uh, into different cities in Canada. Um, and and I, I don't I just my, my thought is, like, I think that that's a trend that's going to evolve if housing doesn't end up being more affordable. And now, you know, knowing that it's a function of a rising capital cost, I don't see the afford and, and the, the data that Brett Ben presented at the beginning. You know, I don't I don't really see it getting more affordable relatively anytime soon unless price price and 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 i think the one other thing um in regards to the rate hikes that uh, that richard said before he signed off was like that it was priced in i was actually really really um shocked at how quickly prices came down in the gta especially because it it was almost like they were forward looking a little bit and it was priced in I, i mean the recoil was was probably a response to how quick the run-up was as well. But I'm interested to see how much prices start to come down uh, across the country as as this you know increased capital cost starts to take hold. Uh, Peter, you've had your hand up for a bit. We'll let you jump in, and then we'll go to Alex. Cool. Uh, I know we're jumping around all over the map. Um, actually, what was the last thing you just mentioned? Uh, oh, the recoil, right? Sorry, I had yeah. a note on that. Uh, yeah, so I, like I said, I know we're jumping around all over the place, but uh, back to Justice uh, Queen's point, I, I completely agree about this one missing middle. The Toronto Real Estate Board is, has mentioned it as an issue as well, too. Like, if we looked at, I think in Toronto, in the 416, you're, you're either House Toronto or Condo Toronto. They're, they're, that, that really is about it. I, I'm gonna, Roughly, I'd probably say we're three quarters of the transactions in the 416. To maybe even eighty percent are detached or condo, so like you're left with like twenty five percent of row housing and and semis and that kind of stuff, which isn't enough, obviously. It's complete bullshit, personally. Um, you know, I'm I have me and myself and clients. We have investment properties where we're sitting on like large lots that you know we're just renting out as single family or duplexes when we could easily put four or five units in them. Um, but aside from that. Uh, to Deer's point, uh, you know, it, it, from conversations I've been having with uh, the other third of uh, Steve's pod, uh, he like Canada is having a cash shortage in terms of a U.S. dollar shortage. They 
they issued a, uh, I think it was last month, dear, they issued a, a, a U.S. dollar denominated bond, basically, because they were short of cash. And my last point was based on your recoil, how quickly it happened. Um, I think Ben had a really good point on, on the rise on rates and how quick it was. And I think that had a huge effect. Like at, at, at the rate of change on, on the increase of those mortgage rates. Right, yeah, I believe funny. I believe it was. Yeah, I believe it was like the. Fa- I think he said the fastest magnitude. And uh, Ben, feel free to jump in to correct. But I think it was the fa- the highest magnitude or the fastest increase we've seen since like something like the eighties. Um, Alex, did you want to jump in here? I know you put your hand up sort of when we were still talking about about housing policy. So. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I just wanted to address uh, Steve's uh, supply pessimism. And Steve, don't don't take this as an attack. So you know, I, I there there's you know there's pro supply people, there's supply pessimists. I want to call them, and there's supply skeptics. Supply skeptics are typically your NIMBY, where you know it's like the it's not affordable, it's not going to help. You know, they're kind of divorced from reality. Supply pessimism is totally understandable. It's you know we have all these other issues on top of zoning that will make it difficult to really build a lot of housing. So I fully understand that. And, and I just want to come and address some of that. So excuse me while I talk some economic nerd jar- jargon, but I'll bring it home and, and, and try to relate it, you know, in average speak. But in economics, um, the supply curve for housing is not a straight line. It is kinked. And it is kinked at where the minimum profitable production cost is. And it's minimum production, uh, profitable production cost um, amount where prices are higher, obviously builders will build. If the price is below this, then builders won't build, and so you get no new housing. The thing is, it is true that municipalities cannot necessarily control the entire market, but they do have a lot of control over this minimum profitable production cost, so MPPC, as I'm just going to continue to call it to save my breath. So, you know, how do they affect it? They affect it through zoning. They affect it through levies, levies like, you know, development charges, uh, community benefit charges, and so on and so forth, parkland. Even the federal government and the provincial government through the HST and land transfer tax. So there are things we can do to lower it uh, that are within, um, you know, our policy levers. Some of it is short-term stuff. Some of it is long-term stuff. Like the labor component is a policy. You have to go and kind of, you know, push students into, into that labor force, but you know, there are things we can do today to push that number down so that even if prices are falling, it, it, we can still actually get more supply. Maybe it kind of averages out so it doesn't seem like you're building more supply, but people have to understand that the amount of it, uh, they have to understand the concept of price elasticity, which is how much like how much production you're giving at getting at any uh, co- at any given price. That's not quite it, but just the thought of it. But so we have policy levers to help us in a downturn actually hold the floor or increase supply. Um, 
you know, and if you guys want examples, sometimes it's maybe just momentum, but even in 2008, we, there were still people starting new home projects. It wasn't like housing supply goes to zero if housing prices go down. Even if they go down 20, 30, 40%, as we saw in, um, in the 08 correction, there were still housing starts. There were more geographically concentrated to specific places, but there were still housing starts in the overall national market and in most regional markets, actually. So, the supply pessimism, I understand it. There are a lot of issues that need to be addressed. But I think if we have a focus on, and you know, this is where the politics have to come in and all that. But if we have a focus on driving that minimum cost down, um, we can get more supply even in on a downturn. And on the flip side, when prices do start increasing again, uh, you know, we will get more housing per dollar that is it's going up. This has been a serious problem that people, I think, has, that's that uh, high prices in Toronto have been masquerading. You'll see politicians say, well, it, you know, the price is whatever the market sets. Um, you know, not, nothing we do necessarily influences it. So, you know, the, the market can bear it. The market can bear it. Okay, you've added all of these costs. Supply hasn't actually changed. But that's not a marker that something is is, is good and is, and is working. Because just because supply didn't change isn't a good indicator. It's prices went up and your supply didn't it didn't change. It's actually a really big red light, flashing warning light in economics saying, well, you have a structural issue. Supply should rise with prices. The fact that in the Toronto region, we haven't really seen that much of an increase in supply relative to the amount of price increase we've seen tells us we have massive structural issues that if we work on, the next time we get out of this, uh, you know, the recession that's coming up and all of that, we have huge opportunity to really have the uh, housing sector boom, and it's not, and it's going to boom with like good middle class jobs. You know, this whole discussion about uh, real estate is too much of a large percentage of our GDP. Yeah, that's that's a concern, I guess, but it's it depends on like what are people, what what is this component of GDP uh, taking up of? Is it people? Uh, building things and money circulating because people are building things. You know, you have workers, they go get their lunch at some store close by. Or is it all this money is just trapped in these static assets that are providing nothing except a service called shelter? That's the problem. If all of this GDP for real estate is just static shelter, then we're in trouble. So anyways, that's that's my two cents. Thanks, Alex. Uh, really well stated. I, I appreciate Dan, that. Yeah, can I just ahead, jump in real quick and then I got to hop? But, um, yeah. Really great discussion, everybody. Really appreciate the points. Maybe just on that last, um, the last point on um, just housing investment generally being very high. I guess the one thing that jumps out within the residential investment, again, remember, it's the three components, right? It's new construction, which is high. Renovation expenditures, which is at record highs. But then the one that's off the charts is actually ownership transfer costs. And so that's largely a reflection of like a lot of transactions, like an unusually large amount of transactions in real estate, plus prices being very elevated. And so that alone is almost 3% of GDP, which is like absurd compared to long-term norms of like closer to 1%. Uh, and that's the big concern because it's a flow metric. It's not like, a, you know, it's not like we're measuring GDP. It's kind of trapped in housing. It's just like, you know, a lot is being derived off of um, buying and selling progressively more expensive housing to each other. So anyway, I'm going to leave it there. Uh, thanks, Dan, for the invite. But I, I do have to hop to get uh, my yeah. kids to baseball. But, uh, yeah, thanks, for sure. everybody. Pleasure, Ben. Thanks for joining us. Um, Steve, you had your hand up, and and I think uh, most of Alex's commentary was was uh, directed towards your supply pessimism. I might just um, actually, yeah, I'll, I'll jump in after Steve. Go ahead. Um, 
Yeah, no, I mean, my kind of thoughts were more so just like, um, I'm not convinced that you can build enough to get like prices down. What I do think is like, okay, so instead of like in Vancouver or GTA or whatever, you know, instead of like having 20% price growth last year, like I think had we built enough supply, like you would have seen maybe 10% price growth. Like, so I just don't like, I don't think you can like, like swamp the market enough to get prices down in a meaningful way. Like, I think maybe we can build enough we can oversupply the market and keep it flat for several years. And that would be, that would be a really good thing. So, uh, I mean, like I'm all for supply, trust me. Like it's, uh, I mean, and I just getting back to Peter's point as well. Um, we have the same thing here in Vancouver, the missing middle. It's definitely like a real, real thing. Um, so basically the options in Vancouver, I always tell us like all our young families, it's like, it's either you go into a two bedroom condo uh, or you buy a single family detached house. Like there is no in between. Like, so anytime like a three bedroom townhouse comes on or like a three bedroom duplex, like anytime that comes on the market, those get like snapped up right away. Multiple offers, like it's basically a guarantee. So they, we really haven't been building that. And I know like Ben, Ben's, put out a bunch of charts in the past which is hey look at you know new single family uh new housing supply new construction for single family houses you know we haven't added more housing stock well it's like you know you look at like vancouver i know the gta is pretty similar a house in the inner city like the land alone starting point is like 1.6 million um so and then you're you're i mean i know a spec i know spec builders they can do them for about 300 bucks a square here all in so even if the land price gets cut in half, we have this huge financial crisis catastrophe and the land goes back down from 1.6 to a million bucks. Like you still can't build new single family homes for like, you know, for the developer to make a profit for less than minimum, like two, 2.3 million bucks. So I think the days of sort of single family home, even if we get a, you know, a good bear market here where prices drop 20, 25%, I just, I still, I still think that's dead and we'll have to go to more, uh, I think missing middle product. Uh, I th- the unfortunate thing that I'm seeing in Vancouver, I don't know about the GTA, is that you know these guys continue to be insistent on building all these high rise condos, uh, which I just yeah, I'm just I'm not finding a lot of families in, in Vancouver anyways are actually wanting to be in those. Um, I think there's a huge huge demand for ground oriented townhouses, uh, duplexes. That's that's where I think there's huge demand there uh but just don't have the zoning for that unfortunately so there you go yeah i appreciate it steve um to hear you had your hand up for a bit do you want to jump in there and then we'll get back to Alex? yeah I, I just kind of wanted to touch on the supply side and and I'll, I'll kind of maybe speak also from what i've seen in america and and from what i've seen from what thomas soul has written on the subject and i still don't know how this guy hasn't uh gotten um you know uh, become a Nobel laureate yet, but um, I, I think the issue is yes. I mean, you have this this flashing red flag or uh, flashing red sign in, in, in economics when you look at the supply and the demand curves, but I, I think that most of that goes back to policy failure, and you're not going to be able to have an increase in supply until you get more deregulation, and and you can actually compare two markets. Um, 
San Francisco and, and Las Vegas before the financial crisis, Las Vegas had very little uh, regulation, no zoning laws, no urban growth boundaries, which are kind of green belts. Um, but they had four times the, the population increase. Um, but they were able to build supply um because it was cheap. And so obviously you had, um, you know, sprawl being built and then you had obviously, you know, downtown uh, Las Vegas, I would never want to live on the strip. But um, so this kind of led to this filtration mechanism. I mean, you've seen very much the same thing in Houston. Um, but at the same time, if you look at what's happened in San Francisco, um, you you haven't uh, even with populations actually declining, price houses are still going up because they have these zoning laws and they have these bad regulations that are in place. I think that this has a lot more to do with affecting the supply curve than than anything. And until the government's willing to abolish the green belt or, you know, get rid of zoning laws, I don't think supply is going to be able to be fixed. Um, and I think that that's fundamentally the issue. And the other issue is the labor, um, the, the actual labor issue. Um, I mean, STEM majors, and this is a statistic, I think it was put out by the um, uh, Alberta Business Council, but they found that 30% of STEM majors in Canada um, flee to the United States. So they're, they're these middle-class jobs, engineering, good-paying jobs, um, these these things that you would consider, quote-unquote, middle-class jobs, none of the Canadians who, who are, you know, would work these well-paying jobs want to stay in Canada. They all want to go south of the border, and I, I don't see how the government's going to end up fixing that. I mean, 30% of your STEM majors fleeing your country is, is a pretty large um you know, percentage of people who are refusing to stay in that country. And I mean, those brains are coming to the United States and they're working here and they're adding to productivity here. Um, but I don't think that you're ever going to see that in Canada because there's literally zero incentive. I mean, if you just look at pay gaps um, and, and pay ratios between Americans and, and Canadians on, on like a, on a ratio adjusted basis, I mean, it's, it's quite large. Um, and so I, I don't see like how any of this gets fixed and how Canadians really ever have the ability to to solve this problem until there's massive deregulation and changes within the housing structure. Thanks to here. Uh, Alex, you want to jump in there? Yeah, uh, I'm just going to um, try to address a few, di- a few different points that were brought up. So in terms of is there going to be ever enough supply to bring down prices, that that's always the big question mark. I think rather the way to look at it first is what we've got to stabilize the patient, right? Somebody's bleeding out. You don't you don't talk about how can they recover from bleeding. You talk about how can you stop the bleeding first and then we get to recovery. So uh, what I would say is our initial forays into building supply are really about decreasing volatility. So, you know, the problem is housing prices in 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 um, Canada, more generally, the GTA, they, they do these like massive spikes up, they do these little little spikes down, and then they go do this, these massive spikes up. We need to um, smooth things out a little bit more. And, and we know, uh, like, supply elasticity does bring down volatility, it makes the lowers less low and the highs less high, it doesn't it's not a panacea that that will always guarantee that you never have a housing crash or that you never have housing appreciation. It just says the highs don't get as high and the lows don't get as low, generally speaking. Now, there's always exogenous events that can happen. Like there's a financial crisis that spills over into the. Well, I guess it was the it, it was a um, it was a it was a housing crisis spills over into the finances. But you can always have a financial crisis from some other starting point that then spreads out. So there's always exogenous events that can crash real estate for whatever reason. But generally speaking, more supply elasticity, uh, meaning more res- being able to ramp up production to meet higher prices, um, 
is a good thing and is healthy for your economy. And that's what's going to give people a lot of relief. It's very difficult to uh, plan your life. Like prices, housing prices can be high and people can live with it, but they can't live with high pro- housing prices that go up 20% in one year. Like they just can't live with that. Um, so, and, and firms really struggle with that. A lot of, a lot of builders who they, they go, well, did these price hikes, did they go up and is this stable or is this, is this just like, are we in fantasy land and is it going to drop tomorrow? So it makes everybody's lives very difficult to plan around. So really we got to work on that volatility piece first and foremost. Um, and then kind of the pricing itself will, I, I think will just work itself out if you can get that volatility down. Um, the, I also want to address Steve's point about condos and, you know, uh, and if you ask anybody, what, like, Aria does, does these um, does these surveys, and it says, what home would you prefer? And everybody says, of course, single detached home. If money was no object, I would pick a single detached home. But uh, money is obviously an object in most people's lives. And so when you start asking people, well, if money is an object, what would you be satisfied with? And yeah, most people would be satisfied with some ground-related multifamily housing type, be it rows, stacked rows or whatever. The issue is when you only have enough development land uh, in a small concentrated area, you can't affordably build those multi, those ground related multi uh, family dwelling types. You have to open it up uh, to make it feasible. And it's not, it's a policy choice that we build so many condos when everybody goes like, Oh, we're building all this supply. Look at all these cranes. I like to remind people the, the number of cranes in the sky does not denote how much supply we're building. It denotes the type of supply we're building, and absolutely that is not an accident. It's not that builders are necessarily only on their own choosing to build condos. It's that planning has said this is the way that we're going to build housing. And and condos have their own issues because, I, you know, I'm not going to get into it, but they have their own natural inelasticity. They're very long lead times. They, it's very hard for a condo project to relate to the market as is it can relate to the market in five years which which caused all kinds of problems um to deer's point about reg of deregulation look health he- healthy cities grow upwards and they grow outwards uh, if you want to be more environmentally uh, uh sustainable you grow more upwards than outwards um but you know we've chosen instead to focus upwards in very specific places and then outwards it's that you know it's the tall and sprawl as they say uh, it's not that we need to deregulate um, uh, all these different things. Right now, the regulations literally say you cannot build this. So it's 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 not that we have to like eliminate that and say yes, you can build this. You actually have to like build a lot of regulations to make it possible um, to to build missing middle housing. Um, you know, I don't like the framework of, of of regulate or deregulate. I like the framework of smart regulations. You have to put in smart regulations that enable people to construct housing, um, you know, that, that people want to live in that is, you know, safe and what have you. And then finally, with, with the population growth, uh, somebody made a comment about population growth um, and they saw prices going up despite that. Look, your housing demand can actually go up. It's not population growth that people have to look at to understand the demand for housing. It's the number of adults. Your population can still decrease, but the number of adults can be increasing. And it's adults who need housing. Obviously, children need housing too, but they don't have independent housing demand. So it's it, it, your population can actually decrease, but if the number of adults are increasing, then, then the amount of housing uh, you need goes up. So like this observation that like, well, prices are rising despite um, uh, population going down, it's a very nuanced understanding. And there's also other 
other things that drive housing demand like wealth, interest rates, income, and all that stuff. But but a big piece of it is how many adults do you have in your population? Thanks, Alex. Um, Justice, did you want to jump in on that? Oh, yeah. So I just had a quick point, and it was about the condos, because I know like a lot of people get concerned when condos go up, but because two, like on two-thirds of the land, you can only build detached homes. Like that's a big barrier to not being able to have that missing middle. Like if we could have built missing middle all these years and had walk-up apartments and different sorts of, um, you know, options, we would be in a very different place today. Um, and I know a lot of people say missing middle is too expensive to build, but I live in missing middle right now. And, and my missing middle option like is a townhome and it's still a million dollars cheaper than the detached homes around me. So I, I still get to like live in the city but I have a missing middle option so I find it strange when people do say it is expensive like yes my townhouse is still expensive but it's still like a lot cheaper than like detached homes um and I think that 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 big barrier is the zoning and that's what actually does need to get corrected because I do think that the, the condos are getting smaller and smaller like the units are quite small for families um, and they do uh, need more options. But I think that the zoning is the biggest issue. And I do find it like this is just a political point. But I, I find it strange that Toronto is like, you know, apparently like a very diverse city, very inclusive. They predominantly vote liberal and NDP like that's very well known. But when it comes to their diversity and inclusion efforts on housing, they are a complete failure. They are some of the biggest NIMBYs in Canada that will block anything. And it is in other cities in Ontario too. I mean, even when townhouses are proposed, like Aurora proposed a townhouse development and they went nuts and they said, no, we don't want no townhouses. It can only be uh, like, it can actually be nothing because we paid a premium to live on this land. So we have like this immense amount of opposition. And I think that people really need to start calling these people out on what it is. It is like, you're basically discriminating against people that are different socioeconomic classes. Cause somebody that's going to live in a townhouse or a condo townhouse is going to have to pay less money. So they might not just be in the socioeconomic class that you're in, but that is what they're doing. And I think that counselors need to start like having a backbone and actually like mentioning it to people because when you actually look at cities if you go into like um the consultations that happened in Yellowknife that are happening in Regina right now that happened in Edmonton those counselors were like having no tolerance for those comments like they dealt with the public and they dealt with the residents associations but they weren't like do you want this to happen they were like this is happening we are going to have infill housing and we're just talking about how we're going to do it like we're not asking permission on doing this so i think that we have to start changing the conversations and actually uh standing up to these resident groups that don't want housing in their neighborhood because i think that is a big barrier and i the other barrier i see is with environmental groups that can have very extreme views even in terms of having children now like they think it's best for people to not have kids and not even have family formation and not solving the housing crisis. So there's these very extreme views that we need to get rid of. And I also think that there's also views on the pro-housing side that are like abolish single family homes. I don't think that's where we're going either. Like, I think you still need the single family homes. If you look at the stats, um, more single family homes do sell and we have still made a lot of condos. So like, I think that was Peter's point before, but we just need all types of housing basically. Thanks justice. I think it actually, it marries quite nicely with, uh, with what Alex was saying earlier as well about sort of like the economic theory of, of as a, you know, I, cause I think it's sort of undisputable 
that we will be seeing a recessionary Canada by you know at least the middle of next year, probably probably by the end of this year. Um, and and I, and I think you know we need to sort of pave the way for innovation in in the economy, even if we're going to fo- continue to focus the the economy around housing. But talking about that, like Alex was talking about that growth of middle class labor, and you know one of the things that was unlocked in Ontario that really hasn't had the opportunity to be impactful as a result of, uh, I, I would say. A, and a planning bottleneck, but but I'm interested to hear uh, others' insight. And again, like to me, this, this, these types of policy failures kind of tie all the way from the municipal level to the federal level, from my perspective, um, and, and especially relevant to to the provincial election, given you know secondary plans and the Ontario Housing Task Force report, et cetera, um, and the and the use of secondary plans in you know the suburban GTA would be the one example that I know well. A lot of these secondary plans call for uh, six story buildings which can be built out of wood and so that that allows you to you know to steve's point and i know steve had to leave but to steve's point it allows you to start reducing the cost of per square foot buildable cost of, of this housing um and, and but not only that but allows you to start getting innovative with the way that you're building housing um and and it it allows you to re- potentially retain or create uh career opportunities for a lot of those stem careers that are leaving in the construction space it allows you to to bring in new specialized labor um you know we're not we're not leading in the world in in building out of out of wood to that in that mid-rise environment you look at what's happening in in europe or in a lot of different places in the world um we're light years behind i would say what a lot of these these places are doing not just on the planning side but on the construction side and and i i I think that you know when you when you want to talk about a cohesive strategy to rebuild the economy given what we have sitting in front of us which is uh, an economy that is primarily based on on housing housing development finance etc and and you know immigration to grow the economy um i don't see like to me that is the most important political discussion that should be happening in this country right now is how do we get to more of this type of product not just because of, of the housing perspective but from the economic growth perspective that's being ignored by a lot of politicians so i'm interested to see how this moves not just from the political election that we're seeing today but also to the municipal elections that we're going to see later this year and something i want to be having a lot of conversations around um you know towards the i think municipal elections are in the fall for the most part um i'm not sure if anybody wanted to to touch on that at all prior um to otherwise we can we can probably just wrap up so everybody can get out there and cast their votes if they if they haven't yet um any 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 uh burning desires or anything anybody wants to add before we wrap up susan well hello there daniel how are you doing I'm good. I'm good. I just wanted to shed some light. Well, I just want to make a point, two points, actually, that Tahir was saying something about, like, you mentioned the green belt. And I think it's so, like, I mean, I think we understand that land is finite, right? So it's like if we keep building and stuff, we're, we're shortchanging ourselves on agricultural space, right? That we, that is a depth, like we need it, right? So if we remove restrictions on the green belt, like what happens next? And I think my other point was about immigration, I don't know if they actually factor, like when they're doing like, you know, immigration, migration numbers, I don't know if they actually factor in quality of people versus quantity, because everyone's like, oh, 200, 400,000, 900,000 people are coming here. But how many of them like legitimately are going to, you know, help us like, you know, with our economy essentially? And, and then do they factor in refugees too? So I guess those were the two points I wanted to make. Thank you so much. 
Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Alex, your hand went up there. We'll go Alex and then to here. Yeah, so on, on the piece about land, you are correct. Land is, is finite um, with regards to the Greenbelt land. So um, we have a reserve of land called White Belt land. So when, when people are like, oh, we're expanding into the Greenbelt, you cannot legally expand into the Greenbelt. There are some very specific cases where people have tried, like, uh, with that Amazon warehouse. Um, but generally speaking, when you hear about urban boundary expansion, it's not urban boundary expansion into the green belt. It's urban boundary expansion into the white belt. It's this reserve of land that we put there, uh, to be built on eventually one day, uh, to save the green belt. Um, the, in terms of like, how does this affect housing? Like, so land is finite, land is finite anywhere. Uh, it's not something you can really create unless you're like Singapore, you know, raising land out of the sea or, or you're the Netherlands. Uh, but that's not what's important. What's important is how much buildable square foot you can put on any quantum of land. And then, you know, the second dimension to that would be how, how can you, uh, divide that buildable square foot. So the amount of buildable square foot that we can build on any given parcel of land is, is limited to both, uh, regulations and technology. Um, you, so technology pretty much allows us to build quite high. Um, but regulations is what prevents us from being able to build additional square footage. Um, so it's an artificial cap, and that's what causes kind of the scarcity. In terms of immigration, I'm not an expert. Um, I do know that we have tried to shift our immigration so that we, we what was happening in the past was we were getting immigrants, and they were very high, like, they're very high quality people. I know this because it was my own family. People, who, my aunt, who was qualified as a doctor in France, came here and they told her to basically redo her residency and she went to one of the best medical schools in france it was like kind of an insult so she's like screw this i'm going back to france to be a doctor there so you know we were losing a lot of of, uh, a lot of people were coming here finding out that their profession they couldn't practice their profession uh, that they were wholly qualified for uh because canadian society is very credentialist um and then they and they move home or worse they then get into these spirals where you have these like phds in engineering who are cab drivers and they never kind of get out of that whole of, uh, of of living um so what the government said under stephen harper actually was that we're going to try to attract these these uh students and then they'll come here and they'll get their qualifications um at canadian schools and so they we won't really run into this credentialism programs and so you know if you look at the stem field a lot of the kids there are actually first generation immigrants they're not kids of, uh, you know although there is lots of children of immigrants in these STEM programs. A lot of the people in the STEM programs themselves are immigrants. Um, so, you know, I don't know how you exactly determine quality when you're importing high school students that are going off to colleges and universities. Um, but that's just the commentary I want to make on that. Thanks, Alex. Um, Tahir, did you want to jump in quickly? And then uh, I think we'll probably wrap up unless anybody else wants to jump in. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. The The only reason I came up was because Justice said something and then I messaged her, but I wasn't sure she was going to see it. Um, but, y- you know, th- this is actually very interesting. And this goes back to some kind of Thomas Sowell wrote on. Um, and I-, I think that it touches on really the dangers of, of, let's say, zoning and its adverse effect on, on people with lower incomes. And like now that I'm in Canada, like obviously... I'm fortunate because I I work for a very large institution and, you know, only Peter knows where I'm staying right now. I don't want to dox myself and have people show up, you know, I'm a bit of a celebrity, just kidding. But, um, you you know, so like, you know, my bank covers all of those kind of costs, but outside of that, what you find 
is it's usually people obviously with higher incomes who aren't affected and what thomas soul found in this research again this was looking at san francisco is now the death rate of blacks um, within San Francisco surpasses the birth rate. Um, and so what this has caused is for people to move because of the affordability um, and people with lower incomes, it's caused them to be pushed further and further outside of, of you know, downtown core. And whether you're in the GTA um, or, or elsewhere, usually the big cities, um, you know, downtown Toronto, uh, downtown Montreal, downtown Vancouver, is where a lot of the job opportunities are. And what this causes is for people to be pushed further out to, to your Bowmanvilles, to your Hamiltons. Um, and this is a lot of the people with lower incomes because of just the um, unaffordability that they suffer in, in downtown core and the inability to ever be able to um, afford something that is, you know, large enough for like, let's say a family of three or four. Um, this actually leads to kind of a perpetual cycle of poverty because um, a lot of people with lower incomes don't obviously have access to um, let's say cars or access to the same modes of transportation. And so therefore they have to, you know, and if they have daycare costs um, and their kid goes to daycare in Bowmanville and they have to commute into, you know, downtown Toronto, this puts a lot of stress. So a lot of times, um, and there's quantitative evidence that Thomas saw, and I, I really think everybody should kind of read that, uh, actually have to go and take lower paying jobs than what they could find in downtown just because of the inability for them to, to kind of make that commute, right? Like if you're going from Bowmanville, even by the GO train, I don't know, I've uh, probably like 45 minutes to an hour and anybody who's taken the TTC now that I'm in uh, North York and I take it to Bay Street every day, I mean, the TTC is a, a joke, um, absolute disaster. Um, and, and so like it, it, it kind of leads to this really inability of people to to be able to either make it to work on time or, you know, finding people to take care of their kids if they're getting home late. Um, and I think that, again, this is why and I know Alex said he doesn't like the word deregulation, but I'm more of kind of a Milton Friedman kind of hardcore let the market do its thing. Um, I, I think that deregulation is the answer. And really, um, obviously, people with higher incomes aren't affected by this, but it's the people with lower incomes who are being pushed further and further out, east or west, who are actually suffering because they're having to take lower paying jobs and kind of this cycle of, of continued poverty happens. Thanks, Nir. Um Justice, did you want to jump in quickly and then uh, we'll probably wrap up? Yeah, so I was just going to go on to Dear Point's um, point. So if you actually look at home ownership rates in Canada, like black people have the lowest home ownership rates. They're 40%. I can tell you that when I put the chart up on my Twitter account, I get like some negative commentary from some people who just don't even want to think about that. But there is so many systemic problems and there's so much housing issues. Like even when you look at the eviction rates of black people um, in Toronto, they're double the rate of everyone else. Um, and then the systemic issue of immigrants having to drive till they could qualify, they've been doing that for decades. Uh, housing has become more of a mainstream issue right now because it is affecting the middle class. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. I think that it's a good thing that it's become a big issue and that, you know, when you kill the middle class, you also are going to have political instability. You can have civil unrest. Like there's a lot of problems with that too. Um, but I do uh, think that, you know, that's why the, it is so important for the government to address the systemic inequalities that are happening. And on top of that, the marginalized groups, like the areas where they live, University of Toronto has done research on this. They actually have less 
um, green space and they have less trees and they have more pollution. So there's like this environmental kind of discrimination that's going on in those areas because they're like being pushed to these very undesirable areas. Um, so that's like the other concern with, um, you know, what is happening. So in terms of uh, the environment and the interesting thing is that a lot of the NIMBYs have dedicated their entire presence to the environment and saving the environment and saving these trees. And I find it such a contradiction because you go on about like, you know, one tree being removed to build housing for a human being Yet you don't think about all those kids in those marginalized neighborhoods who don't even have access to tree canopies. Um, so that's just the point I wanted to make. Yeah, and just my last point, Daniel, and this one's quick. Um, and I'm probably going to have the teachers union come after me. But um, Milton Friedman actually did this one. Um, he found that actually when you had a massive outflow of people fleeing Germany uh when the Nazi party was rising, there was actually a shortage of doctors in the United States. But what happened was the unions, uh, the medical union in the United States said, oh, we have this inflow of doctors, even though we have a shortage. One of the requirements is you have to be able to speak English. So so there was like all of these, like these unions are actually the ones, the engineering union um, in Ontario, the medical unions, the teachers unions, um, all of these unions are the ones who are actually setting these barriers to entry, which therefore I think that we should abolish unions. I'm probably going to get shot now. Um, but I think that we should abolish unions because I, I think that they do actually more harm than good, especially to people who are immigrating to the country um, because they, they literally give them this inability and make them jump through all these hoops. And then usually by the end of the the day um it's so much work and takes so long that um like you said i mean you have cab drivers who were phds and got their phds from the university of baghdad or, or you know cairo um and and you know um extremely intelligent people and just don't have the ability to actually go and work because the unions have set barriers that basically forbid them from doing that thanks dear uh i mean i'm, I'm not even really remotely qualified to opine on most of what you said so i probably won't even won't even try and touch it um is there is there anything anybody else wanted to add uh here I, this was a really fun discussion actually like i like it, it was kind of disorganized and that was my fault i was trying to scramble to to cover two topics to fill some speaker spots and stuff like that but um is is there anything anybody wanted to to add before we wrap up either regards to the election or to the bank of canada decision I'll take that silence as a no. Uh, thank you guys very much for your your time today. Uh, for those Ontarians, um, please get out and vote today. Um, hopefully, this added some uh, some value to that decision making process. Um, I will. I just posted last week's episode in podcast format. I will try and get this one out a little bit quicker. But uh, it, for those of you who need it, you can just click on the recording. Um, and uh, just as a matter of housekeeping, we will be doing these Twitter spaces at 3 p.m. every Thursday until September just to allow people to not have to interrupt their uh, long weekend drives and also to try and start accommodating some people who, you know, it's their their job to have these kind of conversations and so they can do it during the workday because they otherwise wouldn't be able to outside of the workday. So I, I did put a poll out and, and everybody seemed on board. Actually, uh, it was it was the majority support for, for moving it to 3 p.m. So hopefully that works for everybody. And if not, um, I'm glad you can can catch the recording afterward uh thanks again have a wonderful weekend um and get out there and vote yeah peace out thank you daniel thank you